Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. Adjust my mic here. Well, we're continuing um, our series on the church's worship this morning. Um, if you're new or haven't been here in a while, we've been in the middle of a series kind of taking us through uh, what this gathering is all about, what it means to believers, what it should serve, and so on and so forth. And last week, I introduced a problem, and that is that sometimes, and maybe most of the time, our worship can seem rather disconnected from the rest of our lives, meaning that this gathering is set apart and sanctioned off as something religious, and that it doesn't touch upon anything outside of that sphere. In other words, our worship is something that's confined to an hour and a half on Sunday morning, and it has really no significance for Monday through Saturday. Apart from that, it might be encouraging to us or it might leave us with a few things to think about as we leave. And so the remainder of this series, what we're trying to do is connect those two things, uh, to bring Sunday and the rest of the week together and to show um, that what we do here is not some sort of abstract thing, but it relates to all of our lives. And really what I want to show is that the central practices or that the habits of our assembly set the tone for the rest of our lives. And the practice that we have in view this week is the hearing of the Word of God. And really, this is the central element of our assembly. We come together to do a whole lot of things, but at the center of it is the reading of the Scriptures and the preaching of the Scriptures. And I want to show how that it's not ultimately, or not really only about information, but formation. In other words, it's not only about what we hear, uh, that is, the right ideas and the right doctrines, but it's about how we hear. When we come together like this, God is training us to become good listeners, to become those whose ears are open and attentive to His voice, so that we can respond, not only here, but in our lives, that when God speaks, he knows that we are going to listen. So we'll work our way there, but the place to begin is Revelation chapter 1, that terrifying vision we just read of, which surprisingly has a lot to say about this. So John's apocalyptic vision begins with sound rather than sight. John is in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and he hears a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, verse 10. And that voice is coming from behind John, and it commands him to write down what he sees in a book and to deliver it to the seven churches. They're all today located in Asia Minor or in Turkey. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. But when John turns to see the voice, interestingly, he turns to see a voice, he instead sees seven golden lampstands. And standing in the midst of these lampstands is one, he says, like a son of man. It should remind us of Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are thrown into the fire and Nebuchadnezzar sees in the midst of the fire one like a son of man. 
Anyway, it's a dreadful sight that John sees. And so terrifying was the figure that John fell at his feet like a dead man, verse 17. And what did he see? Well, it was the risen and triumphant Jesus in his eternal splendor. Mind you, this is the same John who wrote the Gospel of John, who walked and talked with Jesus in his earthly existence. The disciple who on the last night of Jesus' earthly life leaned against his chest in the Last Supper. That very same John meets Jesus no longer in his humiliation, in the form of a servant, but in his exaltation, bearing the name which is above every name. And so there John is, cowering before the feet of the one who washed his feet. And Jesus reaches down with his right hand, and he touches him and says to him, Do not be afraid. It's the first reaction when we are exposed to true glory, true life, true power. It's so living and vibrant that it overwhelms us, creatures. He says, do not be afraid. And then Jesus proclaims himself, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and of Hades. And so here, John receives his prophetic call in the same manner as Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel before him, all who had these dramatic encounters with God were struck to the core and then commissioned to speak for him. Encountering the risen Lord, the glory of God is never a neutral experience. Rather, when we come into his presence, right, when we meet the Lord, a burden is laid upon us. We are taken hold of and we are caught up into his mission in the world. We don't leave there the same, but encountering him, we're sent out, we're commissioned to be a part of his work, and that's what happens here to the Apostle John. And what is John's newfound mission? Well, he's in exile on the island of Patmos, and he sees this vision, and the risen Jesus says that your job is to take what you see, to write it down, and to deliver it to these seven churches. So, let's go through that. As I mentioned, John heard this loud voice, and in his words, turning to see the voice, he turned to see the voice that was speaking with him. Now, this is strange that he turns to see a voice because obviously one can hear a voice, but one cannot see a voice. And yet John turns to see the voice. This is a different voice. It's a personified voice. It's a visible word. God's voice is not mere information. It's not a vibration that passes through the air and into our ears. Rather, God's voice is a person. God speaks, and when he speaks, he speaks himself in the person of his son. So John turns to see this living, personified voice But the first thing that catches his eye are these seven golden lampstands. Now, what are these lampstands? Jesus tells him later, the seven lampstands, verse 20, are the seven churches. Now, this is uh, tabernacle imagery. We've been talking a lot about the tabernacle, um, especially in the earlier parts of this series. 
But inside the tabernacle, remember there was the courtyard, and then the holy place, and then the most holy place. Well, in the holy place was the golden lampstand. And it burned day and night to illumine the holy place. It was never allowed to go out. And it was the priest's job, those who ministered in the tabernacle, to make sure that that didn't happen. So they would refill the uh, lamps with oil. They would trim the wicks um, so that it would always be burning. And of course, it signified God's presence in the tabernacle, but also the continual service that was rendered to him there, that the service of God would never be lacking in this place, that it would always continually be happening. So the seven churches are each their own lamp and lampstand. And they're a lamp, right? They're a light because they are to shine and bear witness to the gospel in their communities. And Jesus is the great high priest who walks among them, who stands in their midst tending them and keeping them that they may continue to burn brightly. And so John sees these lampstands, which signify the churches, but past their glow or through it, his eyes are drawn to something still greater, more wonderful than he could imagine, and that's the risen Lord. And when he sees Jesus, he sees eyes that are like, a fire burning. Across Jesus' chest, he wears a golden sash. His feet glow like burning metal. And in his right hand, he holds seven stars. He shares in the glory of God. It transparently shines through him. I want, however, to focus on two details of what John sees. His voice is like the sound of many waters, verse 15. It's an oceanic voice. And from his mouth, verse 16, comes a sharp two-edged sword. Now Jesus' voice, like many waters, or like the sound of many waters, speaks to his power. His voice is like a torrent that cuts through granite and mountainsides. It's like a deafening waterfall that drowns out any other noise. It's not a dead voice, but a living one, such that when it speaks, it accomplishes things. It doesn't come back void or empty. It plucks up and it tears down. It destroys and it overthrows. It plants and it builds up. This is the same voice that spoke the universe into existence. It's like the sound of many waters, a roaring and rushing waterfall when it's heard. But Jesus' voice is also pointed and sharp. It's a two-edged sword. And this speaks to Jesus' kingly authority as the judge of heaven and earth. It's a serrated voice that discerns the truth and cuts fine distinctions, piercing as far as the division of Spirit and soul, Hebrews 4.12, able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. It's a sword-like voice that executes judgment and upholds justice on the earth. It's the same voice prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. 
So John sees Jesus, and it's a powerful, authoritative voice. And simply, the voice is the personal presence of God. Again, God's word is not merely an auditory word, right? Something we hear, something separate for him, from him. Rather, God's voice is God. It's not sound waves or sense impressions that come to us when he speaks, but his own person. The risen and exalted Jesus is the voice of God. And this living voice, like many waters, like a sharp two-edged sword, speaks to the church. This powerful, authoritative, personified word speaks to us. It addresses our church and our lives. Now, it's truly a spine-tingling vision that John is given here. But it's necessary for these seven churches. They need to understand the truth. Remember last week we were talking about worship as it shows us the world as it is, right? Not the way it appears, not the way maybe the, the, the worldviews of, of our society and so on and so forth, but it says this is the way things are. Now that's what Revelation is about. That's what these seven churches need. To see things the way they are, not as they appear on earth, but as they are from heaven. Caesar and the might of his empire are less than nothing before the risen Jesus. They're a drop from a bucket. They're dust on the scales. As his face shines brighter than the sun and his eyes burn like fire. The seven churches are desperately outgunned and outnumbered, but that doesn't matter. Because the risen Lord is on their side. He speaks to them. And so this small and beleaguered church, who, 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 are, who are literally nothing to the empire, persecuted and killed at will, will then grow to transform and take over the empire. Because the door that Jesus opens, no one can close, and what he shuts, no one can open. So John's vision serves to turn things on their heads. It says, this is the way things are. Jesus is Lord and not Caesar. So the question for us then is, why begin here? Why with this vision in Revelation 1? Well, because this is the fundamental situation of the church. It's a spiritual picture of what happens in our assembly. Jesus, the living voice of God who walks among the lampstands, speaks to us. The voice, like the sound of many waters, cascades down from heaven into our midst. And it cuts deep fissures through the earth. The voice, like a sharp two-edged sword, slays and makes alive. It judges and justifies. It strikes the earth in its power. And again, the image that's supposed to populate our minds and our imaginations is Jesus, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the firstborn from the dead, standing in the midst of the lampstands, his various churches, tending to them and keeping them burning. Now, how does he do this? How does he tend to his churches? It's through his word. Jesus' powerful and authoritative voice resounds through our congregation, consoling us, correcting us, and commanding us. And so there John is, fallen before this vision of Jesus, 
And he touches him and brings him to his feet. In chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus says to him, To the church in Ephesus write, The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. And then Jesus proceeds to encourage the church in its good deeds. He says, I know what you've done. I know the good things that you were doing. And then he calls them to repentance where they had gone astray. He says in verses 5 through 7, Repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I will remove your lampstand. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. So Jesus walks among the lampstands, his churches, and he keeps them burning bright through his word. He speaks, he corrects, he consoles, and he gives them direction. Now it's a picture that keeps us from ever thinking that Jesus is somehow distant or removed from his church. He is among the lampstands. He sees and he knows, and he's in constant conversation with his congregations. Now, yes, he commissions his servants to herald his message, but it's his message. Jesus is the primary speaker, and he's not silent. If only our ears are tuned to hear what he's saying. He's always speaking. He's always sending his servants and his word to his church. And each of these... Um, addresses to the individual churches, they all end the same. He who has an ear, Jesus says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear. So in our assembly, what we're doing here is that we're spoken to by the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, the risen Jesus, the one with an oceanic sword-like voice, and our primary responsibility is to hear and to heed his word. He intends for us as a church and as individuals that our lamp would continue to burn brightly, that the light of his presence would radiate from the midst of our life. But it all depends upon our hearing. He speaks, and we need to hear and respond. So changing gears a bit, This might seem strange, but I'll bring it all together. Changing gears a bit, the body part that is most engaged in our assembly when we come together as a church is not our eyes, nor is it our mouth, but it's our ears. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. Now, in other religions, other body parts are primary in the act of worship. So in in the various Islamic traditions, in worship, the mouth is primary because the the, the daily or the central act of devotion is daily prayer, right? Five times a day, I believe. So this is the central thing, is the mouth. In Hinduism, it's the eyes, and in various other religions as well, um, by which one contemplates their God in the form of an idol, right? And they use this as a means to communicate with their deity. Now, in a religion like maybe Buddhism, uh, the aim is to involve the body as little as possible. It's to flee from the body. And of course, Christian worship involves the entire body, but the ear is always primary. 
what does the Apostle Paul say? We walk by faith and not by sight, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And later he says, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so if we take inventory of the things that we do in our assembly, this is quite obvious. We use our mouths to pray and to praise and to partake of the Lord's Supper. We raise our hands in worship and we bend our knees in devotion. And with our eyes, we see our brothers and sisters and welcome them. But for the most part, we're listening with our ears as the scripture is read to us, as the scripture is preached to us. Martin Luther once said that the ears are the only organs of the Christian. The ears are the only organs of the Christian because God is always speaking to us. So the ears are central in our gathering because hearing is central. Hearing is the most basic act of the Christian life. Jesus says, when that woman comes, or, or there's a couple instances, he does it twice, but one of them at least is where his family is outside, he's teaching, and, and, and they want to have a, uh, a hearing with him, they want to talk to him, and Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers and sisters? He says, those who hear the word of God and obey it. He says to the group that's arguing with him in John chapter 10, he says, you're not my sheep. He says, because my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. A Christian, bottom line, right, is just someone whose ear is open and listening to the voice of Jesus. And that's like the central thing. It's sort of the irreducible minimum. We're here because in one way or another, he's spoken and we've heard it. He's opened our ear. Now, we live in a time and place where books abound and most everyone can read. Bibles are not a scarce commodity. Likely, we have two or three just lying around in our homes. So the picture that we get, right, when we think of someone hearing the voice of Jesus, the shepherd who speaks to his sheep, what comes to mind, at least it does for me, is usually a person sitting alone in a room with a copy of the Scriptures, all right, that's the image that comes to mind when I hear someone or I think of someone uh, hearing from the Lord. But when John received his vision and when he delivered it to the seven churches, almost no one could read except the, the very, very educated. And in fact, because of this, churches had to have designated readers, people who had the education and who could read and they would read parts of the Scripture. So there was no such thing as a Bible, right, like we have today, where the books are all neatly bound into one volume that someone can read in their spare time and take with them wherever they wished. Rather, in the ancient world, there were scrolls and manuscripts of each individual book. So a scroll for Romans, a scroll for Isaiah, a scroll for Leviticus, sometimes maybe larger collection of scrolls, but most of the time as individuals. And replicating these scrolls was incredibly expensive. Only the largest churches, right, two, three centuries on from the beginning of the church, um, had the resources to have a, a complete collection of scrolls, right, all the books that we have in our Bible. Most churches were small, and they were fortunate only to have an, uh, maybe one or two scrolls 
to read from. And so rarely by individual Christians were the scriptures read. They couldn't take a copy home. Instead, they were heard. And the place that someone heard the scriptures was in the assembly. For instance, the, the scroll that we're reading from this morning, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle John says at the beginning of the vision, "'Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near.'" It was read aloud in the congregation. So they would have read chunks of Revelation little by little. Um, And he says, blessed are those who hear it and then keep what is being said. So originally, the word was not a visual experience, but it was an auditory one. It engaged the ear and not the eyes. And of course, reading is not the same thing as hearing. Because hearing is something we do with our ears, and reading is something we do with our eyes. Now, why is this important? Because the first act of the church as a whole, and as believers, as individuals, is to hear. It's to hear the voice that speaks to us. Our assembly is not primarily a time where the word is studied, right, where we use our eyes but it's the time where the word is heard, where we use our ears. Because again, listening and reading are not the same thing, right? We listen to the sound of a voice. There's a person behind it. And we typically read marks on a paper. Listening is an interpersonal act. It involves two or more people in close proximity. Reading involves one person with a book, and the author can be miles away on the other side of the world or dead. Now, in the scriptures, eyes are the organs of judgment. God saw and he said, and therefore eyes are the organs of mastery, right? As we scan the text, we can subject it to our authority. But ears put us in the position of obedience, in the position of humility, Right? When we open our ears, we cede authority to the speaker. Reading puts us in control. The reader can engage and disengage at will. He can pick up the book and put it down as he pleases, and the book and the author don't know if they're paying attention. Listening, rather, puts the speaker in control. The listener is more or less at the mercy of the speaker. And he or she can tell when the listener has become disengaged and they're off somewhere else. And of course, right, for the most part, we prefer reading or seeing over listening. The classic image, somewhat of a stereotype, is the husband with his head buried in a newspaper while the wife serves him breakfast. Though today it's not a newspaper, it's a phone, and today it's not the husband, but it's everyone. Right, it's easier and less demanding to use our eyes than it is our ears. It puts more of a demand on us. It asks more from us. And our assembly stubbornly establishes the priority of hearing over seeing. When we gather in the presence of the risen Jesus, our eyes, the organs of judgment and mastery, take a back seat. 
and our ears, the organs of humility and obedience, are brought to the fore. And that's why um, we can never exchange the reading and proclamation of the word in our assembly for something else. All right, like a study or a lesson or a TED talk or a conversation like is very popular these days. Christ is our master and we are his servants. And the fitting mode of reception when he speaks is not to study, it's not to dissect, it's not to sort of tear apart, but it's to listen and to then render obedience. In the Hebrew, there are no there is no rather independent word for obedience. Obedience and hearing are the same word, Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So to hear is to be obedient, and to be obedient is to hear. And that's the proper mode of reception that we're to have, especially when we come together as a church. Now, of course, here's I'm not saying that reading and study... Um, or, or that, that hearing is more important than reading and study. Right, they're equally important. One is not better than the other. All I'm really saying is that before we're studiers of the Word, before we get into it like bookworms, the, the first part is to listen. Our assembly is not a time and place to uh, read or study with our eyes. It's a time to hear with our ears. And that is to humbly, to give ourselves humbly and obediently over to the living voice of God. All right, that's why, that's what this is all about. That's why we're to hear. Now, how does this practice um, affect our everyday lives? Well, to answer that question, we need to see sort of um, how our assembly, that is our corporate worship, um, how it forms us in our discipleship to Jesus. It shapes our faith, and it teaches us what it's all about. All right, so let's try a little thought experiment. It's pretty easy to see how what we do here has a profound influence on our Christianity. Imagine you're a Martian. You're coming to Earth for the first time, and your mission is to learn about this thing called Christianity. Okay, you don't have access to the Internet, so on and so forth. Where are you going to go to find out about Christianity? Well, very likely you're going to go to church. Right? And what are you going to learn at the church service? Well, there you're going to learn what Christianity is all about. But different services yield different results because each one has its own distinct features. Right? A Catholic mass and a megachurch worship service portray Christianity in very different ways. And thus they shape the people who sit in those services, who participate in them, in very different ways. So depending upon what service you find yourself in, your Martian brain is going to come to a different conclusion about Christianity. And of course, you don't need to be an alien to experience this. Spend some time in the fixed liturgy of the Mass with its sights and sounds, with its smells and bells, its solemn and sonorous tone, and you're going to be formed in a particular way. Right? That's going to teach you something about what the Christian faith is. Or on the opposite side of the spectrum, spend some time in a megachurch service with its screens and laser beams, with skinny jeans and fog machines. I rhymed. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna come to... Um, you're going to come out inhabiting the faith in a particular way. 
It's teaching you something about Christianity. And so the point is, for good or for ill, and I'm making no judgment here in the examples I'm giving, for good or for ill, our worship practices are forming us and our communities, giving shape to what we believe, right? How we think and experience the faith. So in our case, this gathering, right, which we come to faithfully week in and week out, is going to shape us over time. It's going to mold the faith in a particular way. So the question is, how should it be shaping us? Well, it should be training us, bottom line, in a lot of ways, but bottom line, to be listening people. It should be training us to be people whose ears are open and attentive to the living voice of God. And that's why, ultimately, the reading of the Word and the preaching of the Word are central. We're being taught to listen to the voice of God, not only here but everywhere. And of course, God wants all the members of our body, but in our assembly, he claims in particular the ear, because through the ear, he gets to our hearts, and from there, he gets to the rest of our bodies. So again, it's not something extraordinary that goes on here. God speaks, and we listen. And it's in that very ordinary act of hearing what the Spirit says to the churches that shapes us over time that teaches us to be people who can go out of here into our normal lives and hear when God speaks. So let's end just with talking about what we are supposed to hear. So we're being trained to hear God's voice in our assembly, but when we hear his voice, what are we supposed to hear? John, remember, hears this voice from behind him. He turns to see it, and what does the voice say to him? Well, the voice testifies about itself. The content of the voice is not mere commands or instruction or doctrine, but itself. God proclaims God. Do not be afraid, Jesus says. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. The voice proclaims itself. The voice proclaims the gospel. And so when the church is summoned to hear the voice of God, this is what it needs to hear. The good word about who Jesus is and what he's done. The gospel is always the first word that God has to speak to his church. Yes, he speaks commands and instructions and rebuke, but those are secondary. The most important thing for the church to hear and to keep on hearing is the death and resurrection of Jesus that he holds the keys of death and Hades. Now, as we mentioned earlier, hearing is about obedience. And it's this message, the gospel, that we need to be obedient to. The first act of obedience is not going out and doing this or that or the other. The first act of obedience is the obedience of faith. That is to hear the good word of the gospel I am the first and the last. Behold, I was dead and I am alive again. I am the living one. I have the keys of death and Hades. It's to hear this gospel and to trust it again and again and again. Because it gets away from us. It leaves our hearts. It's something that we have a very hard time holding on to. So we need to hear it proclaimed endlessly and we need to respond in obedience. So when God speaks to us, what he wants us to hear is that good word about our forgiveness, that Jesus has died and risen again to pardon us 
from our sin, to cleanse us. He wants us to hear that. He wants us to hear about the hope of the kingdom, that Jesus has risen from the dead as the ruler of the kings of the earth, and that he intends to return and establish his kingdom. He wants us to hear this and believe it. He wants us to hear the word of his mercy and his grace, that he's adopted us into his family. He wants us to trust that word, to have it reaffirmed in our heart. And everything flows from there. That's where it begins. And then having heard the truth about God, we're prepared to then hear the truth about ourselves. Jesus proclaims himself to John, and then he tells him, now go say this to the churches. And each of Jesus' addresses to the churches begin in the same way with these words. He says, I know. I know. It's a word of absolute authority and complete discernment. He says, I know your deeds. I know the good, and he encourages the church for those. He lifts them up, he reaffirms them, and then he says also, I know your misdeeds. And he calls them to repentance. There's no sort of gainsaying or debating. He just says, I know. Now James, in his writing, compares the word, the perfect law of liberty, as he calls it, to a mirror. So in hearing this word... We see ourselves. We see our natural faces reflected back to us. And the voice says, I know. I know you. I know all about your life. And so having seen ourselves reflected in the living word of God, we're supposed to act, right? As James says, not being hearers only who delude themselves, but effectual doers. And those who do will be blessed in what they do. So Jesus stands in the midst of the lampstands. He speaks in his oceanic, sword-like voice. And he speaks himself. He proclaims who he is and what he's done. And he tells us who we are and how to respond in light of that. And in learning to hear in our assembly, we learn to hear in our lives. How to respond faithfully and obediently to the living word of God. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And now as we come to partake the Lord's Supper, the Reformers always said that it's another mode of the word. It's a visual word. It's not an empty ritual. It's a message that God is giving to us, specifically the body and the blood of Jesus. Paul says, when you take this Supper, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You're proclaiming something when, or we are proclaiming something when we partake of the supper. That's Jesus' death and resurrection. So I invite you now to come and to receive the elements, and then we'll partake and proclaim the gospel to one another in just a moment.